So, good morning, guys. We're, we're starting a new short sermon series um, that has no title at this point, but we're going to be using the post-resurrection stories. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about life transitions. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, we're told that he spent 40 days on the earth appearing to different people before he ascended into the heavens. And those 40 days were a time of transition for his closest friends and his disciples in terms of how they were going to relate to him going forward. And so I'm going to start this morning by by telling a story that comes to us from John chapter 21, which is the very last chapter in John. And it's about one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how we can navigate different times of transition in our own lives. And so that story from the Gospel of John goes like this. So one night, Jesus and or Jesus' friends were together, and they were hanging out on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So this was Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and two others that don't have names. And so the Sea of Galilee, it's sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias in the New Testament. It's up in the northern part of Israel, and that's near where Jesus grew up, and it's near where all of these guys had grown up, right? They were all kind of northerners. And so this is where they were originally from, and it's home for them. And so they're sitting on the edge of this lake shore, and you know, maybe they're eating and maybe processing some of the things that had been happening in the last few weeks. Maybe they're having a little bit of wine. And they're hanging out, and it's late at night, and Peter just turns to the others, and he says, you know, I'm going to go fish. And so Peter was a fisherman by trade, right? It's what he did before he went off and spent one to three years traveling around with Jesus. And so here we see him back. He's doing what he knows how to do. And so the seven of them, they climb into a small boat, and they go out onto the lake. But even after fishing all night long, they couldn't catch anything. And so as they looked out, and, and morning started to break over the horizon, it's sort of hilly around the Sea of Galilee, and they've got this beautiful sunrise. We're told that Jesus was standing on the lake of the shore watching them, but they didn't know that it was him. Who knows? He may have been watching them for some time before they even noticed. And we're told that the boat wasn't that far out. It was maybe like a football field's length out there. And so Jesus calls to them, and he says, Do you have any fish? And so they yell back to him, and they're like, No! So Jesus said, okay, cast the net over on the starboard side of the boat. You'll find some there. And so that's what they did. So they took the net and they threw it over onto the other side of the boat. And sure enough, they found enough fish that the net became so heavy that they couldn't even drag it over on board. And it was this unexpected catch that caused John to realize and suddenly say out loud, oh, that's the Lord. Like, it was almost like, this is so crazy, that must be Jesus. And so Peter reacts to this realization exactly as you would expect Peter to act, right? He, he reacts with unbridled passion, right? So he'd been fishing in his tunic. Men of those days, they would wear like, a, like an under tunic topped by an overcloak that was a little bit heavier. So he had taken off the overcloak, and so he grabs that, and he ties it around his waist, and then he jumps into the lake. And actually, the latest translation that I've been using that I really love says he, he flung himself into the sea, And I don't know about you guys, but I can kind of relate to Peter. So I am many things, but I am not a graceful woman. Like, I'm not created to be a dancer like Molly Morton and her girls. You know, I I tend to kind of flop my body around a little bit, right? I kind of flop on the couch, I flop into bed every night. 
I flop when I sit. When I got my concussion last year, I was in the Atlanta airport, and it was because I flopped down on a ledge because there were no seats, and I just like crashed my head against a windowsill. And I didn't realize how much I flopped until I got married and I had somebody to be amused by it. <laughs> so I kind of get Peter. He doesn't like dive gracefully into the sea, doesn't gently, no, he just like flings himself in. And meanwhile, the other six men are still in the boat. And so they decide to try and drag that net full of fish alongside them as they row back to shore. And I also imagine that that was a difficult task to try and get hundreds of fish alongside a boat that you're rowing. I didn't put this in my notes, but I, it's another like um, make me look silly story, so I think it's okay. It reminds me of one time my sister Lindsay's bike was broken, and so we were going to drive it out. There was an Amish guy who did all the bikes, who fixed all the bikes out in her area. She's out in the country, and I was convinced that like, you know what, like. We couldn't figure out how to get it on top of the car, the bike. I was like, you know what, you drive. I'm just going to hold it outside the driver's seat and you drive. It'll totally work. It worked for about two blocks. It was so bad. <laughs> I don't know why, but that makes me think of this. You know, the guys are like trying to drag this net beside the boat. It was probably a little bit of a comical scene. And so they get to the shore and when they land, they see that Jesus had started a charcoal fire. And he had some fish that were laying out on it, cooking, and he had a loaf of bread. And so Jesus says to them, he says, go ahead and bring some of those fish that you caught. Bring them on up here. And so they sat down, and they had fish and bread together, and they ate breakfast. And then we're told that none of the disciples dared ask Jesus, who are you? Knowing that it was him. And then Jesus, he took some of the bread, and he gave them that, and then he handed the fish, and they ate. And for me, this is an interesting scene because I think maybe it perhaps best describes or reveals that transition of the disciples were experiencing in terms of their relationship with Jesus, right? It was Jesus sitting there, but there was something that was different about him. And each time that we have an account of him appearing after the resurrection, his body is shown to be both very much physical, but also not the same as before. Like people don't recognize him right away. It's like his body's a little bit otherworldly, and yet also he can eat, right? It's very present. It's like he's almost inhabiting more dimensions than just the three or maybe four that we can see and sense. And so something like that is happening here on the lakeshore, where Jesus' friends kind of want to ask him, who are you? Even though something in them kind of knew, and presumably they had seen him at least once after the resurrection, and as Jesus sat with them, he made the fire, he cooked, he ate, and he drank, and they could see that his body still functioned. You just imagine Jesus touching the warm bread and the, the burnt skin of the fish, if you enjoy fish over a fire, I do. You could pull the bones out of his mouth. Like, it's all very tangible, and his body was transformed, but not. And then after they ate, Jesus turned to Peter, who was probably his best friend, and he said, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the translators note that by these, he doesn't mean like, do you love me more than these other people sitting here, but more like, do you love me more than these things of the age? And Peter says, yes, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my little lambs. And then a second time, Jesus says to Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, shepherd my flocks. 
And the third time, Jesus asks Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you cherish me? And Peter was grieved at that because Jesus had asked this time, do you cherish me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I cherish you. And Jesus said, feed my flocks. Now, it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to Peter that just as he had denied notice, or knowing his dearest friend three times during Jesus' greatest hour of need, Jesus had asked him three times if he loved him. Right? Three denials, three do you love me's. And it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to Peter that just as he had denied knowing his friend three times while warming his hands around a charcoal fire during the hour of Jesus' greatest need, sitting outside in the courtyard, here Jesus had also made a charcoal campfire and he was serving Peter food. Right, so this small scene between Peter and Jesus echoes the night of Jesus' arrest when Peter was disloyal to his friend. And they both remembered because that pain was still fresh. This is two, three weeks ago. And the question became, how would Peter relate to Jesus going forward, knowing that he had messed up so badly and that he had harmed their relationship on such a deep level? And I think that I most often have imagined myself as Peter in this scenario, you know, placing myself in the story as someone who lets Jesus down and who needs forgiveness and approval. But it was Ken who, in a sermon maybe two or three years ago, um, helped me see things from Jesus's point of view, and it really changed the tone of the scene for me. Because having gone through a, a sort of crucifixion-type event myself, when I was publicly outed and fired, which was clearly not as traumatic as Jesus's actual crucifixion, but you know, there were some parallels in terms of the social dynamics. I feel like I can more clearly understand the deep pain that Jesus felt when his closest friends betrayed him. You know, one of Jesus's friends identified him to the authorities with a kiss on the cheek, and then turned him over to be killed. And I had somebody who I called friend for many years out me to church authorities in a way that led to my own exclusion and intense trauma. And many of Jesus's other friends were just silent and scared in that whole process, not speaking up on his behalf and denying being close to him. And I'm like, I, I know those people. Right? I, I can put names to those people. And those were the relationships that were the most painful to me during that whole process. You know, so like many of you probably can as well, I can, I can actually empathize with Jesus in this scene who may have experienced that pain of betrayal, that betrayal of his best friends, and maybe especially of Peter, as maybe even being more brutal than his physical torture. I think I would almost rather be physically harmed than have my best friends treat me that way. It is really agonizing. And so here he is, he's sitting with him on a beach, trying to figure out how to repair this gulf that has come between them. And I now think that this conversation is actually less about trying to make Peter like, realize just how he messed up and much more about Jesus needing his friend's reassurance. Like Jesus is asking him, can I trust you not to harm me again? Like, do you really understand what it means to love me? Do you understand what it means to cherish me? So he asks him, do you love me? Yes, you know I do. Do you love me? Yes, you know I do. Do you cherish me? yeah, you know I cherish you. And my heart is pained that you have to ask me this because I know I was a terrible friend. But Jesus is just needing that tenderness from his friend. And there's a really deep restoration that I think is going on between these two men. And it's only after being reassured that Peter, I think, really got it on a deep level, right? That, or, I mean, only after being reassured that Peter got it, that Jesus could really trust him 
to go and to teach other people not to make that same mistake. Right? Lead my people, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. Like Peter hadn't really been able to move forward, had he, after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was fishing on a boat, catching nothing, trying to make sense of what had happened. Right, which was probably right where he needed to be right there because meaning and forward motion for Peter could only come about after doing the work of this in-between space. It's like he wouldn't have been ready, I think, before this because it's in this space that he was learning greater empathy with the oppressed by seeing just how harmed his friend was, which really developed his core values and it shaped his future leadership. I think we all have transitions and we have these crises points in our lives that we have an opportunity to respond to in various ways. So this last week I was reading a couple of chapters of a book um, by Sue Monk Kidd called When the Heart Waits. It's actually one that Ronnie recommended to me years ago, and it's, it's a lovely book. And I really liked what she had to say about transition points. So Sue Monk Kidd, she describes three types of transitions that come up in our lives. She says, first there are natural life transitions. Right? We have early childhood, adolescence, Transitioning into adulthood, getting married, having kids, approaching middle age, approaching retirement, and then preparing for the ends of our lives. And she says, these are natural transitions. Second, there are intrusive events that kind of come at you. It's the death of a loved one, a health crisis, the loss of a job, a divorce, or a, an intense breakup. And the third type of transitions are what she calls internal uprisings. And she says internal uprisings are a little bit harder to identify and pin down. She describes it as things like just having a vague sense of restlessness during a season of life. You know, maybe a little bit what we call like a midlife crisis is a pretty common one. Or realizing that you have an addiction that you have to start paying attention to. Or perhaps earlier traumas in your life start bubbling up and they're starting to affect your relationships in ways they hadn't before. Or maybe you're just having an existential crisis. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Or a faith crisis. Or whenever what you've been ascribing to your entire life just no longer works. And you don't buy it. Or at least you don't buy it how it's been presented to you. And she says sometimes you're experiencing you know, multiple life transitions or at the same time. But she says there's really three ways that we can respond to any of these. And I found these really helpful. She says first we can chalk up whatever's happening in our life to just God's will or to fate. You know, like if somebody dies, we just think, well, that must have been part of God's perfect plan, or we can't escape our fate. And she says that when we respond to transitions like this, what we're looking for is a sense of comfort and of inner peace, a sense of um, like acknowledging our powerlessness over it, which isn't a bad thing to acknowledge, but it puts us in this place of like, well, things just happen to me. And it lets us put on an accepting outer face while sort of ignoring some of the deeper questions that could arise and cause us discomfort, but that lead to growth. And she says that's, it's really a stagnating response to change because it just quells those questions, right? It's, it's a, a comfort maker. It's a discomfort avoider. And she says the second way we can respond to transitions is that we can resort to cynicism. So you can choose to fight and we can rail against the changes until we become cynical and defeated, or we suffer a loss of faith. And she says, people who choose this way to have a crisis are after justice. And again, it's not necessarily a bad desire, just like seeking comfort is not a bad desire. But when you settle into pessimism and disenchantment, it's just not a very good way to live. 
right? Just as settling into blind comfort doesn't really lead to wisdom or depth. You know, I don't want to waste years of my life bitter and miserable and injustice, and I can care about those things very deeply without letting my soul become just constantly unsettled. And what came to my mind with this one is I was thinking about my Aunt Carol. My Aunt Carol I loved so very dearly, and she passed away two years ago. And she was just kind of larger than life and funny, and she was an artist, and she, I had a lot of fun with my Aunt Carol. But she had a little bit of tragedy in her life as well, in that she lost a son when he was 14 years old in an accident. And that kind of led to the disintegration of her marriage, and then her husband eventually left her for a woman 30 years younger. And she just never quite got over that. She was still fun, and I still really enjoyed her, but 25 years later, if you talked anything about love or family, I mean, it just was like this anger and hatred and bitter, bitterness would come up. And when she passed away, I was talking to my cousins, her, her kids, and we were just thinking, we were like, man, she was so lovely, but there was also, like, she was kind of a tragic figure in her own way that she was never able to sort of translate... Um, her losses and her, her, the things that really harmed her into soul building or into resilience. She wasn't really able to make meaning of or learn from these past mistakes and tragedies. And I just thought, I don't want that to be me. The third option that Sue Monk Kid offers is responding to transitions by waiting. And she says, so instead of delving into cheap platitudes or cynicisms, we wait. And in this space of wait and see, you know, where we're feeling all the feels, that's when we can go further into the soul. And she describes the process as being like a caterpillar who's gone into the cocoon stage, just kind of morphing and waiting to become something more beautiful. And she says, it's really by embracing that darkness, it's almost a comfortable darkness, and embracing the uncertainty and the fear and the vulnerability that's when we can begin this process of discovering wholeness and real spiritual transformation. So in other words, sometimes we have to wait and watch and process so that we can reframe our story and make meaning of it. And then if we just kind of jump right into the next phase without any reflection, we really miss the wisdom-building opportunities. I think the best and the wisest people I know, and probably that you know too, are people who have been through some stuff. Can I hear some amen on that? Right? and who have come out embracing complexities and avoiding bitterness. And I think that's what I want to be. So in our story, the disciples were in a time of transitioning from relating to Jesus on earth to relating to him after he ascends. And Peter in particular, I think, was in a transition from being like a mentee who didn't fully understand his mentor's teachings to becoming this strong and convictional leader. And these men are out there and they're waiting in a safe space. They're waiting in a place that's familiar to them, at home, sitting on a boat, trying to catch some fish, but catching nothing. And I think finding safe spaces to wait is really healing and it's really key. Because during times of crisis and change, we need to lean into our dearest friends and do things that give us rest so that we have space to process the change. And sometimes in the waiting, you might feel like you're just going along, doing what you do, and that nothing is coming of it. Right, it feels a little bit stagnant. But in the waiting, I think there are subtle invitations to throw our nets over the other side while we're out in that boat. Invitations to name and to grieve what is no longer and to also look hopefully for what yet could be. 
I mean, I was even thinking about that with transitioning into middle age as I read her book, because I don't really think about that as like a real big transition, but I'm 41 now, and our bodies are changing, and it's, I, was, I think it was Susan, there you are, at game night, we were talking about that, like, yeah, I will just never be the athlete that I was at 22 again, and just kind of making peace with that, and then looking hopefully for different ways that your, that your body is responding. And I think often when we feel stuck, um, we don't actively take the time to like just name what was lost, right? And then to look proactively at areas of growth. So I want to give a little bit of a larger example. Now, some of us faced a collective grief a couple of weeks ago with the death of Rachel Held Evans. Now, I'm guessing many of us here may have never heard of her, and that's totally fine. But I know that there are others of us here who were greatly influenced by her, her life and her writings. And she was a progressive Christian writer who died fairly suddenly at the age of 37, leaving behind a husband who she liked and two young kids after what seemed like the entire American Christian world was praying for her healing for two weeks straight. And I know at one point, I looked over and my Rachel, we were watching some of the Twitter things, and she was like, oh my gosh, somebody online just wrote, I guess God just needed her up in heaven more than she was needed here which is kind of a strange thing to say on a few levels, like just so you know, like that's not usually a helpful thing to say. And it's very much in the vein of responding to a crisis with like, it's God's will, so let's just take comfort, right? God needed another angel. But what that implies is that God caused the awful thing to happen, right? And the God that I love doesn't cause bad things to happen just because God needs a new angel in heaven, right? Some things just suck because they suck. I have a greater temptation to say, okay, well, how is there a God if somebody like Rachel Held Evans dies so suddenly and traumatically? Right? My impulse is to lean into cynicism, looking for justice. But there's no justice to be had, at least not in any human way that I understand. And instead, I think we can learn to wait and to watch. Right? And you just kind of sit with your feelings and you learn to identify why that's so startling. And it is. When somebody dies young, it makes us feel vulnerable because we are vulnerable. And faith in Jesus is not a protective charm against sickness and death. And if we let ourselves feel the hard feelings, that's when we do the work of soul building. You identify, why do I feel vulnerable? Am I living my life the way I want to be remembered by my friends and by my family? I still always think of Caleb with this. I know I've shared this probably a few times, but I remember Caleb died when he was in his early 40s, and the thing that he said was, I just would rather be remembered as the guy who shoveled my, my neighbor's sidewalk than for anything really huge. Like, he knew what he wanted to be remembered for, what was important to him. What might it mean to live as if death doesn't have the final word? I don't think that it does. But what if it does? What if we're wrong? Would that change things? What will progressive Christianity be missing without Rachel Held Evans? Can we grieve those losses and name them without looking for someone or something to like immediately fill a void that can't be filled? And what opportunities does that open up? Right? These are all the questions that you ask in these spaces of waiting and growing because crises often provide opportunities for change and growth. And so in this story that, of Jesus that we were looking at, you know, Jesus wasn't completely recognizable when he showed up on the lakeshore. And he surprised his friends. And I wonder if this story isn't telling us that when we're in those times of waiting and transitioning, that God just might show up in unexpected ways. And we might not even realize that it's God until a little bit of time has passed. 
And if Peter had gone straight from an empty tomb to becoming like the traveling pastor that he did without this in-between time of going up and going fishing with his friends and trying to figure things out, he would have missed this growth. And he would have missed the meeting of his interior world with his exterior world, right? This idea that in his body, he could sense in his body that this was Jesus at work, even while being unsure with his eyes. And that can teach us that we can trust some of our intuitions. Our bodies are smart. Our bodies are spiritually attuned. He might have missed learning just how deeply harmed scapegoating victims are when their friends betrayed them. He might have missed understanding what real reconciliation entails. And then later on in the chapter, we have Jesus addressing Peter's rivalry with John. And so Peter is learning to relinquish his own competitive nature and learning that Jesus cares about not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with our peers as well. And these times of transition that we go through are sometimes long, sometimes they're years. And when these years are really long, or these times are really long and really dark, St. John of the Cross calls them the dark night of the soul. But most often these seasons are shorter. And I think that's when we come to realize the holy spiritual practice of waiting that can keep us from sinking into powerlessness and cynicism. So with that, let's go ahead and have a time of meditation. We often take two or three minutes of either silence or guided meditation. Today I'm going to do a guided one, and I want us to start by just taking a couple of deep breaths and getting comfortable. And as you do, imagine yourself sitting around a campfire on a beach. And let your imagination fill in the details. Is it night? Is it morning? What's the weather? What's it smell like? Now add in a few safe people sitting around that campfire with you. Imagine that Jesus, or the spirit of love, however you understand her, is also there, cooking you something you enjoy over that fire. And this personified love starts to just hand you the food and you're eating it. Just picture what is it? How does it feel and taste? And are your fingers all greasy? Or what's that experience like?
You can either just sit there and enjoy the safety and the relaxation of that space. Or you can invite Jesus or the spirit of love to point out if there are any places that you've maybe allowed a sense of powerlessness or cynicism to affect your happiness. And maybe just name that you'd like to better learn how to wait and identify the spirit that is love in that, in that space. So let's just take maybe a minute here to sit with God in that space. Jesus, we ask that you would help disciple us into being wiser people. We ask that you would help us to refrain from going just into cheap platitudes or cynicism in response to life's changes, but that you would really teach us how to grow, that you would teach us how to have some real depth and to not be afraid of our questions and of darkness and of doubt and all of those things that come about in life. And I ask that we would be able to sense your presence when we're in these spaces of transition and and darkness and that we would have some moments where, like the Apostle John, where like something so outrageous happens that it's like, "This, this is crazy, this must be God. I ask that you would teach us to recognize those moments in our lives. I ask all your blessings. Lord, on on us in this coming week. Amen.